red light. Pull a gun on the owner of the liquor store. You think it's cool? Act a fool if you like. Cuts out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of the show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 284 on our network here. And uh, just want to, before we bring Jim on, just want to say a special thank you to our audience. Uh, who would have thought a, a year plus ago when we started our roundtable with myself and Kevin Kernan and Will George and Sal Marinello, that we would have spawned into nine shows, uh, a production network, 50,000 subscribers plus um, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices, and, and have some of the most prominent guests on in, in baseball, some of the greatest voices, hence the name, and some of the greatest co-hosts here uh, in the business here. It's, uh, this network is about smart. Uh, we have a sophisticated audience, and we do this for you. And because of your support, now we are the latest podcast group on iHeartRadio. So thank you for that support. Following the show, make sure you give Jim his five stars that I know he's going to deserve. I read the show notes and gone over them. I've got a great one in store for you today. So get your pencil ready and your legal pad if you're old school like us. Index cards maybe too. Um, but uh, give him five stars, write some comments, and certainly ask us some questions because we'll provide you great content every week uh, just like we do on this show. So with Jim, with that, Jim, welcome back to your, your show. Thank you, Dave. Hello, everyone. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we, we traded notes. Obviously, we, we do a vigorous warm-up before the show. You and I probably talked 40, 45 minutes prior to shows, too, just kind of talking through baseball and sometimes not even the show notes. But uh, we had some interesting conversations about a shared program that we look at, but uh, specifically about one of the all-time great pitchers. And I'm just going to throw the name at you and let you unpack it any way you want. But uh, there, there's some there's – some, uh, I don't want to say wisdom, but there's some secrets to, to pitching that uh, we could all learn from the great Sandy Koufax. Yes, it all uh, it all popped up this week when I was doing some research, looking into a couple different things. And uh, sure enough, uh, there's a story I'll get to in a second, but uh, Sandy Koufax's name pops up. And, and it was in a vein that you were like, well, that... Uh, I didn't know that about Sandy Koufax, and and um, so it led me to two different stories that from my past. The first one was that when I was growing up in New York, uh, Sparky Lyle, the, the great closer for the New York Yankees, I believe one year, not a, uh, as a reliever, he won the Cy Young. But um, you know, he was a closer in the days that you would come in when the tying or winning run was on base. Very rarely did a closer start a clean inning. Uh, or sometimes it came in the eighth inning. Sometimes it came in the seventh inning, whenever the situation warranted it. Many times they threw multiple innings. They didn't just throw one inning. Uh, and Sparky Lyle, he's famous because all he threw was a left-handed slider. Now, when he was first signed, he was one of the original bonus babies. He was signed, people don't realize, by the Baltimore Orioles. But because they didn't put him on the big league roster, he was able to be claimed by the Boston Red Sox. And he was a fastball, curveball pitcher, left-handed fastball, curveball pitcher. Um, so one day in spring training one year with the Red Sox, uh, he um, worked up enough nerve. And, and I know the story because not only was it in his biography, but 
1999, I was uh, given the great pleasure of working with Sparky Lyle in the, with the Somerset Patriots in the Atlantic League. So Sparky tells a story where um, he asked Ted Williams, who everybody could say is maybe the greatest hitter ever, <clears throat> what's the toughest pitch to hit? What, what, do you, what do you ever have any difficulty with? And Ted Williams said, I don't, there's this pitch, I don't know what it is, but every now and then you see somebody throw it and it, and he describes it with his hand motion on the, the direction, the, the shape of that pitch and what it does in the late action and all. So, you know, the, the story, the grand story, probably for the biography was, uh, Sparky went out and he was staying with a family. It was, he was in a ball at time, maybe, or, or low A or something like that. Um, and he would spend his free time throwing baseballs against an old barn, trying to replicate the movement on the pitch that Ted Williams talked about. And hence, he developed his, what I call, left-handed slider. It goes on from there. Besides his own success, he uh, taught Ron Guidry and, and, and then eventually Dave Rigetti. Both were fastball curveball pitchers when they came up through the system. Guidry came up through the Yankee system as a fastball curveball pitcher, um, undersized but extremely athletic. Dave Rigetti Dave uh, came up in the Texas Rangers system and I believe was traded to the Yankees where he was a starting pitcher and then he became um, a closer, a top-notch closer. So he was, uh, I guess you would say he was John Smoltz before John Smoltz. Um, and you hear the stories about how Sparky Lau taught them the left-handed slider. Being a Yankee fan, of course, you're just consuming everything. And a left-handed pitcher as a young left-handed pitcher, consuming everything that you can, you can get your hands on to, to read and to try to duplicate and the whole thing. So many years later, it's my first year of pro ball with the Baltimore Orioles. And my first year manager was a gentleman named Lance Nichols who was a catching prospect in the Dodger organization. So the legend goes that he caught Koufax and Drysdale and the whole thing. And Lance was a very, very intelligent baseball man, probably on the field, the most intelligent baseball man that I ever came into contact with. Uh, no disrespect to anybody else, but he was truly three, four, five steps ahead of every single game, every single pitch, everything that you would be involved in. So, Lance would catch my bullpens, all right? And an old, uh, he uses old pancake, you know, no hinge catcher's glove, and he would catch my bullpens. Not only uh, a couple of them in uh, the minicamp after I signed, but every between start bullpen, Lance would catch. Um, and we would work on that left-handed slider. He'd put his glove down at different locations, talk about things and stuff. And you were supposed to put the ball there. He would talk to you about the shape. So one day he starts telling me about how Sandy Koufax threw the slider and how he taught it. And, uh, you know, you're like, Sandy Koufax, he's probably got one of the better, best curveballs in the history of the game, especially from the left side. And so you listen, you know, um, and he tells and describes how he would hold the ball, what was the goal, um, 
through the evolution of, of my thought process from eventually hearing it from him and then Sparky Lyle and others, I look at that left-handed slider, I call it a sideways split. So the split tumbles out straight down and the slider tumbles out um, a little to the side and down. And he taught, taught about controlling the depth, controlling the depth of the pitch, how your fingers are supposed to work and, and stuff like that. So you fast forward and you see Mariano Rivera throwing a cutter, but then Mariano Rivera starts telling you about how his fingers control the depth of the pitch. So really it's a cutter slider because he would throw some with depth. Now to guys like Sparky Lyle, eventually myself, and uh, Mariano Rivera, it's really not important what you want to call the pitch. It's the action that is what makes it successful. So we go to a time when I'm a pitching coach in the minor leagues for the Toronto Blue Jays. And um, the guy running the minor leagues at the time this year was the, you know, the all-star, former all-star pitcher of the Oakland A's and the Toronto Blue Jays, Dave Stewart. And... You know, you've, you vaguely recollect the pitches that Dave threw, fastball, slider, split, but you don't really know of any, you know, uh, personal stories from or anything like that of, of how he learned any of his pitches. So there was two guys in the junior college, in the draft that year, in the June draft out of junior college. One was in Florida and one was in California. And the guy in California, Dave, really loved and a whole bunch of other scouts in the amateur scouting department loved the kid in um, Florida. And they were both big, strong right-handed pitchers. So I had the ability uh, and the opportunity to see the guy in Florida. I did not see the guy in California. We're lucky enough that we get both of them in the draft. And they go to uh, Medicine Hat Canada, rookie ball high high level rookie ball their first season and I used to scout and then I went to medicine had to be the pitching coach so I kind of had a handle on a majority of the people that were selected by the Blue Jays and then I would work with them so I'm working with this big right-hander from California he's got a pretty good fastball um Envision a, uh, a, an in-shape Alex Manoa. Just a big, strong guy with a good fastball. But his breaking ball, he's trying to throw a curveball. His breaking ball needs work. So I start teaching him how to throw the slider based upon all the knowledge that I had acquired and learning it myself from Sparky Lyle's biography and all the stories about him and Guidry and Rigetti. And then the further knowledge I gained um, – playing for Lance Nichols and him telling me how Sandy Colfax would teach the pitch. So I started working with this young right-hander in about two weeks. He's got a pretty decent little slider he can use in the game. Near the end of the year, Dave Stewart comes to town to check out everything's going. And uh, he watches the game and this right-hander throws. That night, Dave asked me to go to dinner with him and a couple of the other uh, coordinators that were in town. So we go to dinner. We end up uh, playing a little pool, relaxing. And he says, 
how did you teach that guy the slider so fast? So I went through the whole explanation and he said, that's unbelievable. I said, why? Why is it unbelievable? He goes, that's how Sandy Koufax taught me my slider. And that's what helped me turn the corner to become a successful pitcher. So you look at the story. You learn from Sparky Lyle. Many people did. Gidry, Rigetti. You start to develop the pitch. Then you work a whole year with your manager, Lance Nichols, who caught Sandy Koufax. You further develop the pitch. And now you're teaching it to others. And Dave Stewart, the all-star pitcher, says, that's how Sandy Koufax taught me mine. So it, it comes full circle. Um, and it's just one of those stories where learning this game of baseball is not about reinventing the wheel. There's many, many people that have played many, many games of baseball and have been way more successful than, than us. And they've, and they teach it and it goes down from generation to generation. Um, some of that stopped because I have a theory. It's just an opinion really that, um, when ball players, ball players started making big money. So I always go back to, um, maybe the first contract that Cal Ripken Jr. signed in that era. After that, ball players started making enough money that in the off seasons they're not working, you know, and that had been happening for a while. But when they're done playing ball, I mean, they have generational wealth. They're playing golf or going fishing or doing things with their family that they weren't able to do when they were younger and they were playing ball. Or in the case of Ripken, starts Ripken baseball with his brother, or or Jeter starts becomes a part owner, or A Rod starts buying basketball teams, and they're way above being on the field and teaching their craft. And that's what kind of opened the door to a lot of the uh, analytics that you see now, in in my opinion, because a lot of generational knowledge that was passed on on how to play this game of baseball kind of ends up being lost because those guys are not getting back on the field involved in the game. Um, So it gets me to the second Sandy Koufax story. So this week, as I often do, I spend my mornings in, in my home office and I do research and I look into different things. So I had um, been in communication with a former right-handed pitcher in the Dodger uh, Dodger organization, Justin Orendorf. And uh, I believe that he had, uh, after his career came to an end uh, due to injuries, he had worked some in a uh, major league organization as far as um, hand-in-hand with the analytics and different things. So he had been exposed to a lot of what could be done on that side. And then he started putting some of his own theories and thoughts together. And he developed this new system, which um, uh, became available to the public, I believe, September 1st. So I'm very, very interested in, in acquiring more knowledge about this entire thing. It's called the DVS system. Yep. Full, full disclosure for our audience who Justin's been on our shows a couple times and very, very uh, 
and actually, I think Jim, you just learned that today, right? When we started talking that he pre-show and my, my two, two of my, two of my children, our oldest son and our oldest daughter actually uh, have gone through the DBS uh, system with just throwing uh, more of kind of a test run with it. So yeah, we're, we're, we, we, just like we like you smart. I love smart. Um, and, and I think when you and Justin get to meet at some point in time, I think the world could explode in a good way from the pitching standpoint, because, um, yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to digress. Here, no, but- no, no, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I, um, started watching Justin's videos. I mean, he has pretty good social media presence. I read a lot of his stuff. And then I saw when the uh, DVS system was up and running and the website and the whole thing. So I, uh, I enrolled in the uh, introduction to the system and to how it came about and some of his background experiences and the whole thing. And what I, what was unbelievable about the introduction for me is that he said that of course he knew Sandy Colfax. If you were in the Dodger organization, you know, he was a very prominent individual, but when he read his autobiography or just, I'm sorry, biography by, uh, uh, Jane Levy. Now he starts saying that, well, I have, I have the book right in here in my office. And he starts going over how, um, Koufax spoke of pitching mechanics, the delivery, right. As a series of levers, and Justin had never heard it uh, discussed that way, that it was about levers, that it wasn't about soft tissue. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here, so if I get some of it wrong, you know, excuse me. But the gist of it was that through the biography, he's introduced to this new idea. And um, similar to myself, uh, my career came to an end uh, due to uh, an accident and uh, Justin's came to an end um, for a variety of reasons and had a couple surgeries. So he was always looking for answers like I'm always looking for answers. And uh, he started to develop from his knowledge, his background and his experiences, experiences on the field, experiences off the field, experiences working in uh, uh, Major League Baseball front office uh, uh, being exposed to the analytics, being exposed to the video analysis and different things like that. And he developed uh, this DVS system. Um, so I thought there for a second and I was like, isn't this interesting? Sandy Koufax has influenced him to create this system uh, that I'm sure is outstanding and I'm going to be hopefully using it soon. And my theory, my philosophy of triple spin mechanics, which we've gone over, is all based on levers. <laughs> so I didn't hear levers from Sandy Koufax, but Sandy Koufax had influenced me in other ways. And Justin hears the story in the biography about Sandy Koufax, and it influences him his way. And then here we are basically in the same boat, trying to help young ball, ball players out to stay healthy and have fun and, and have a long career at whatever level it takes them. So the question pops up, long levers. All right, well, what, what does that actually mean? So besides, before getting into like, there's no need to discuss the physics of it right now, but there's a perfect example for me. Long levers. So 
there's the classic um, long-legged, long-armed, short upper body pitcher. And the two that stand out to me, because everybody I believe knows them, they end up on two opposite ends of the success scale. Uh, Doc Gooden and Floyd Yeomans. Floyd Yeomans was a high draft pick, if not a first round pick by the Montreal Expos. I believe the Expos, but eventually ended up on the Mets in their, in their minor league organization. Um, he's related to Doc Gooden. I don't know. I, I used to know exactly. It might be nephew, but I, I forget, or cousin or something like that. Where they're the short body, long leg, long arm guys. And Gooden was able to corral his length and become highly successful. Yeomans was still a big league pitcher, but never gained the status, even though he had great stuff, because he, he just wasn't as successful in the zone or some of the other reasons we've talked about. So it brings me to a story. Um, I forget the year right now, but I'm in the Brewers draft room when I'm uh, in charge of overseeing all the scouting of amateur pitchers. And, um, as what happens in the modern day of, of analytics, you know, in an analytics department, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of little baby, baby birds chirping to get the attention to the head of the analytics department or the head, the general manager, so to speak, or maybe the president of baseball operations. So I use the analogy, a lot of baby birds chirping, you know, wanting to get a piece of the worm or want to get the whole worm. And, um, trying to get the attention of the, of the big boss or the mama bird who's got coming back to the nest with the worm. So a lot of tripping going on, a lot of, a lot of noise, a lot of activity, everybody fighting to get the, their piece of the pie to get the attention so that they can move up the ladder. Um, well, that happens in other departments also, you know, in baseball. So especially when you start moving away, as I said previously, from the people that have had um, long-term experience in the game. So you, sometimes you go into a draft room and uh, I've always said there's two types of people that I've encountered in baseball. There's the ones that work for a great organization and are continually trying to improve how things happen within that organization and the best communication is between the people in that organization from the different departments to the individuals within each department because they're a team, all right? And everybody knows the meaning of team and everybody pulling in the same direction and working towards one common goal the, to benefit the organization. And then the other person is really has their own agenda and is looking for their next best job. And if they can't get it within that organization, moving up the ladder, whether no matter what department they're in, they'll, their communication ends up being better with everybody outside their organization because they're looking for the next best job that they can find. They're looking to climb the ladder as fast as possible. <coughs> Excuse me. So we had a situation where uh, an area scout 
really loved um, a pitcher, Taylor Youngman, at the University of Texas. So this scout really loved him, and he loved a uh, a hitter out of uh, LSU, outfielder, um, great athlete, could run. The question was the hit tool, and at the same time. Um, University of Connecticut had Matt Barnes and George Springer. And somehow, I still don't know how it occurred, but the scout that loved Youngman and the outfielder from LSU ends up in Connecticut watching a Big East game, Springer and... Matt Barnes. And I happened to be in the ballpark. Uh, had no idea that this other individual was coming. So that's what transpires. And now we end up in the draft room and we're ranking the players. And now the guy that loves Matt Barnes and George Springer he doesn't really have a defense if the guy that loves Youngman and the LSU outfielder is asked to speak on his player because he hasn't seen the guys um, down in Texas. Long story short, the story centered on Taylor Youngman. Outstanding college career. Uh, long legs long upper body, medium to long arms. He's about six foot six, six foot seven, maybe. Um, some of the things when you go see him, he's, um, he's consistently in the strike zone, but a lot of his secondary stuff isn't getting people out in the strike zone. Um, Low 90s, crank it up to mid-90s when he needed at the time. Threw a curveball and a slider. They end up being slurvy, both of them. And a, f- a fair changeup. So on top of all things, the guy that's watching Taylor Youngman, he's getting radar, ra- uh, radar readings, radar gun readings. He's taking the top reading that he sees from other people's guns instead of his own gun. And that kind of defeats the purpose because you're seeing and writing reports based on your gun so that it's all the same, that we're not introducing variables into the equation. I mean, some guy could have his gun set low. Some guy could have his gun set high. Different guns give different readings. So that in itself is a, is a red flag. But Youngman, he gets to the big leagues, and he's a pretty good pitcher, but there's nothing lasting. There's nothing sustaining. And after a little bit of a run, which sometimes, you know, your first-round pick and you signed for, I don't know, $2.75 million or something like that at that time, you know, you're going to get an opportunity in the big leagues because especially a small market club can't, um, can't be throwing around money like that. So the guy basically won out 
um, and uh, Brewers have two picks. I believe it was the 15th and the 17th or 14th and 16th, something like that. And they take Taylor Youngman. Now, what's interesting about that draft, and, uh, and as a result of the conversations that, that were about the other players, George Springer, I don't think, was ranked high enough. But um, is the Brewers had two picks in the first round very close together. And uh, I spoke to the uh, director of scouting, and I said, uh, I think um, I think if you want to play it safe, not necessarily safe, but a way to go here is that you could take Sonny Gray out of Vanderbilt with one of the picks and then take Jose Fernandez, the high school guy down in Florida, with the, with the second first-round pick. And, you know, you're kind of covering your bases. Sonny Gray's pitched uh, very well at Vanderbilt. He's pitched for Team USA. He pitched with Garrett Cole as an underclassman on Team USA. He's pitched in all the big spots. Um, I think that would be a pretty good plan. And on the flip side, there was another guy in that draft out of Georgia Tech, a big left-hander. And... Uh, Kind of late in the season, I get some inside information that uh, he's a great kid and everybody loves him, but some things have started to become a crutch. His workouts, his pregame meals, different things. The The whole concept of a crutch is starting to enter into the picture. Um, and then there was questions about his breaking ball, about his left-handed slider, not only the shape, but the usage and different things. Well, long story short, we take the... Taylor Youngman and the guy out of uh, Georgia Tech, and neither of them went on to have a career that Sonny Gray or Jose Fernandez has. But the thing about Youngman, it's all about levers. It's very difficult. It takes phenomenal athleticism to all of a sudden control your length or control your levers. Um, and if you look back and you, you were lucky enough to read Sandy Colfax biography like uh, Justin Orndorff was, and it makes you start to think and you hear this concept of levers, some of that starts coming into uh, coming into play. Yep. What, and what I like about what you're saying, what Justin does with his program too, is everything's slow and controlled. And, and to go slower means you have to have more control of your levers, your body, your legs, your arms. And um, I want to kind of take a sideways step with the, with the Brewers. We were talking about the Brewers a little bit and some of the draft picks. And when we get back into some of the stuff we're talking about, I think it's important for the audience. And I know you won't bring this up because you're not boastful, but, um, and if you don't want to comment on it, it's okay too. But I was reading an article, John, he John Heyman in the New York post was talking about the kid Stearns chances with the Brewers and the, the great starting pitching and guys like Brandon Woodruff and Josh Hader and Devin Williams, how they were brought into that fold and developed um, and it's become really the guts of the Brewers. They're pitching. And as I'm reading through the articles, I see a lot of names who I'm sure deserve credit. You get, you know, Doug Melvin, uh, Craig Council. But there was a name missing from that article that I know from my research and I know from knowing baseball and being in and around baseball that there was a, a, a very, very prominent name missing. And that was you in that article. Um, Jim Rooney, who was over that uh, pitching stuff. Um you know, and I, I, I know you're not one to look to get credit and you're not one to, to say, look at me, uh, just the opposite, which is why I'm bringing it up. But, uh, 
I mean, g- give your thoughts on that. I mean, they've, they've had a great pitching. That has been the guts of the organization. That's why they've done well. Um, to talk, talk to that a little bit, um, how and why and, and some of the influences you had on some of those pitchers while you were there. Um, well, first off, thank you. But um, no, Doug Melvin, um, they mentioned Doug Melvin in the article. And some, yeah. what, sometimes what gets uh, overlooked is um, – a small market club at that time when Doug came over, he he turned that uh, and and with the help of the big league coaching staff led by Ned Jost, he he turned that at the time losing organization into a winning organization. Uh, so that can't be understated. That's sometimes that's more difficult than taking a a, a good team and making them great. Um, to take a organization that's been mired in losses and injuries and different things. Um, Doug Melvin did a couple of things, um, from my vantage point. The first one was that, uh, he came in and he saw the, the problem with injuries for high draft picks and whenever they did spend money on pitching and they ended up hiring me as the pitching coordinator, um, because of my background in exercise science and having my own training facility and different things like that. And my background with pitching, uh, I do believe at the time he received a very good reference when he spoke to Grady Little, my former manager, uh, for two years in the Oriole organization. And uh, Grady, Grady spoke very highly of me, which I, I thanked him for. Um, we reduced injuries that first year by about 70% to all the uh, pitchers in our organization. A lot of that came from people working together and trying to find answers from, uh, at the time, the head Major League Baseball trainer, uh, Roger Kaplinger, um, did an outstanding job with that. And Doug Melvin basically stating, listen, we're a small market club. We can't have DL days. So this became the two things from the pitching side was we can't afford DL days and we need starting pitching. So the whole thing, for five years, I worked um, on the development side with the likes of uh, Giovanni Gallardo, Chris Capuano, Derek Turnbow, Matt Wise, um, Carlos Villanueva, and I'm sure I'm I'm missing some. uh, Chris, um, missing out on a couple, I know for for a fact. Um, So I apologize for that. But... um, the whole thing was to, um, as I said, let's reduce injuries and let's find starting pitchers. So then, um, five years into it, um, Doug and the assistant general manager, Gord Ash, um, the director of scouting was Jack Sarinsak, who later went on to become the general manager of Seattle, uh, Seattle Mariners. They asked if I would go over to the amateur scouting side and, um, help in the uh, scouting and evaluation of pitchers, you know, across the country. Uh, I agreed. Uh, I thought it was something that would end up pretty good for me to add to the resume and and continue to grow as a person and a baseball guy. Uh, So we went over through a lot of discussions and teamwork and a variety of things. Now, you do understand that up until this point, the amateur scouting on the Brewers had done a great job um, under Jack Sarinsack, an outstanding job uh, with uh, with hitters, a lot of quality hitters. You can go down the list. 
Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks, Ryan Braun, Corey Hart, J.J. Hardy, Billy Hall, uh, Jonathan LaCroix, uh, Scooter Jeanette for a while there. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of success on the hitting side. And when I was the coordinator working in development, I saw all those guys and developed relationships with all of them as far as they could play and they could hit. Um, but there wasn't up till then a very large investment in pitching. Um, so I think that in Doug's mind, that that needed to improve. So when Jack then, I, I moved over to the uh, amateur scouting department and then Jack moved to Seattle. And we kind of put all our heads together and, and um, I kind of, because it was my job description, took the lead in developing benchmarks and tweaking our evaluation system and doing different things um, to help in the success uh, then a couple, you know, a couple of stories pop up. You know, Brandon Woodruff was buried on our, he's buried like in the 250th spot on our sideboard of right-handed pitchers. And just so happens that after the 10, first 10 rounds, the first day of the draft, at that time the draft was 50 rounds, the director of scouting wants to uh, take a shot at somebody that was uh, supposed to go into the year and, and, be at the top of the list, but for whatever reason, struggled or something happened or he got injured. So the conversations went around the room and everybody gave their candidate. And then uh, I was asked and I said, uh, you know, I got the perfect guy, Brandon Woodruff. Where's he? Mississippi State. Anybody else see Brandon Woodruff? Only the area guy who, of course, wasn't in the room at that time. Um, when did you see him? I saw him on Tuesday night. I did a special favor for the area scout. I had a rain out, so I ran over there uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. He's a more athletic uh, Jimmy Nelson. He throws bowling balls like Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy Nelson had just become the ace of the Brewer staff on the big leagues after we took him in the second round out of Alabama. Um, and we were lucky enough that we moved Brandon Woodruff over and, and, uh, you know, luck of the draw. A lot of the other guys that were on the board ahead of him. And when it was our turn to pick, the only guy on the board was Brandon Woodruff. Uh, we knew he was going to sign the area scout. Scotty Nichols did a phenomenal job. We knew he was going to sign. And, um, you know, of course, in those situations, the director looked at me and he goes, all right, well, he basically has to, take Brandon Woodruff because if he doesn't, the whole front office is in the back of the room and he's the the top guy left on our board now. So he looks at me and he goes, all right, Jim, this your guy, Brandon Woodruff. We'll take Brandon Woodruff. So the bullseye was on my back. That was not the first time that that occurred. And, and uh, the rest is history. I mean, I can remember the first spring training when my good friend and longtime um, co-worker, Tommy Craig, who had spent, 25 years, I believe, in the big leagues as the head trainer for the Toronto Blue Jays and uh, during their World Series times and the whole thing. He sent me a message. Um, I just worked on Brandon Woodruff's uh, shoulder, you know, to get him loose to go throw a pen today. It's the best shoulder I ever put my hands on. And Tommy's an old school trainer and he has, you know, I mean, 
Roy Halliday, Calvin Escobar, Chris Carpenter. I mean, it goes way back. Dave Stewart. There's a lot of uh, David Wells. There's, there's a lot of very successful pitchers right there. And he just said strength-wise, flexibility-wise, mobility-wise, everything about him, you know, it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, and then, you know, a couple more stories happened like that where everybody in the room thinks Corbin Burns is a, is a reliever. And I say, listen, uh, at the time we, Gord Ash brought a, a old school pitching coordinator, Rick Tomlin in who had worked during the George Steinbrenner days with Gidry and the whole crew with the Yankees. Um, Rick was not going to back down from anybody. He was going to do what he believed in. Rick and I developed a very positive relationship. We worked hand in hand together. I called him up and I said, Hey, this kid burns. You, you teach him how to hit, use those hips better and get him down the slope. And, um, he's going to be pretty good. He's got a four pitch package already. It's just a matter of the delivery. Rick did an outstanding job. They developed him phenomenally and he ends up being a Cy Young. Now, um, now, on that point, though, you, and I don't, want, I don't want to mean round on you, but you talked about hip hip mobility, the importance of hip mobility, spinal stability, scap stability. Talk to that. I mean, you can talk specific to, to that particular pitcher, but talk to that to the importance of um, what you're doing now, uh, what you've done, and then what you're seeing in your research. Well, the craziest thing is back in 1987 when I started coaching Division One baseball, Pace University. I just from my evaluations, just from the things I learned from, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers like Jim Palmer and all the pitchers in in Baltimore and the pitching coaches and their programs and the way the organization handled things. I I knew the athleticism was the key. And and you'd always hear in, you know, NFL draft combines when they deal with quarterbacks, can you you move his hips? Can you open his hips? You know, different things like that, that they – start saying are so important. So in 1987, when I started putting together the initial concepts of triple spin, I knew that the most important aspect was the, um, was the hip mobility. Hips have to move correctly. Um, the hips, a hinge joint in order to hinge properly. There's all kinds of ways. Uh, there's also internal and external rotation of the hips, both sides, uh, if your hips don't work, you know, I used to say, your hips don't work, you're going to see the doctor. Um, a lot of times there's hip limitations and the stride foot, hip limitations and external rotation and the stride foot then opens early and it brings everything to the front side and it looks like the parts are in the right place, but the rhythm and timing is off. Like I equate the triple spin in the hips like rolling out the carpet. When the carpet's all rolled up in the big circle, that's the hip turn. Halfway down is the shoulder turn, and the whip at the end is the is the arm path through release point. But the, the key to the hip mobility is that if your hips don't work and you have tight hip flexors especially and you end up with a forward tilt of the pelvis, you're not going to have spinal stability. If you don't have spinal stability, you're not going to have scapular stability. And as the years have gone by, you know, the exact date, I, I don't remember, but you know, all of a sudden research comes out, hip mobility and Tommy John, here's the problems. Improper hip mobility is going to lead to excess torque on the elbow and different problems that lead to those type of injuries. Well, 
shoulder problems. If you don't have scapular stability and that scapula is floating around during the, during the arm path when the arm's trying to rotate, um, it's not going to be successful. And then you're going to have impingement syndromes. Impingement syndromes lead to rotator cuff. Impingement syndromes start with tendonitis and then the awful thing if it's not corrected to microscopic tears in the rotator cuff and the tendons and then full tears and the whole thing. Uh, floating scapulas end up with uh, subluxations of the humeral head, and the humeral head then expands or tears the glenoid labrum, soft cartilage in the shoulder. So to me, it all started with hip mobility. It all started with hip mobility. And um, as my career progressed, I can remember working in Toronto, the pitching coordinator was Bruce Walton, who later went on to be big league pitching coach. And uh, I used to do a lot of reverse mapping in the delivery. So worked back from release point and Bruce and I had many, many discussions on it. And the difficulty that we started coming into at the time was that the foundations that were coming into pro ball were in the pitchers deliveries were so bad and the hip mobility was so bad that we had to get that up to snuff before we could even start even thinking about reverse mapping. Um, so just the way the human body works, if your hips aren't working, your spine's not going to stay in the proper position. You're going to lose lumbar lordosis. Spine doesn't work properly, then the scapulas can't stabilize itself around the spine. And, you know, really the horse is right out of the barn. Everything's going to upset the apple cart. You're going to be done. It's, it's, it's a no-win proposition. Um, and the craziest thing about that is this is, this is why – I'm um, I'm extremely encouraged uh, by this new system that Justin has worked on and has now just made public. Because if you go back a ways, they started with um, high-speed photography, high-speed high video to try to break down delivery concerns. When we were with the brewers, they would take all the high-speed video, then the engineers would and the, and the analysts would take a look at it and they developed a system if you were outside the means as far as the shoulder and the elbow is concerned, outside a, 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 a mean, too far away from the median of what they put together, then your chances of injuries have increased. And it, it was compared to modern technology, it's, it wasn't uh, like it is now, but it, it still was pretty successful. But the crazy thing about it is that um, – I have a couple of stories that I've, I'm always interested in because it tells you a lot about human nature and the thought process of how individuals look at different situations. And then because this is the way it occurs, um, it, it's based on different biases, um, your, your own personal biases, your own personal experiences. And sometimes that influences your, your, your opinions and your decision-making process. So I go back that um, when I'm working for Toronto Blue Jays and Tim Wilkin was the first one that started having me going around the country looking at pictures. <clears throat> so I get a call. I was supposed to be over in, um, in the Orlando area. <clears throat> and I think, I think, I was supposed to be over in the Orlando area and I was rained out. So I was coming back to the uh, Tampa St. Pete area and um, 
I get a call from Tim Wilkin, meet, meet me here. And I forget the exact location, but I believe there was a left-handed pitcher named, named uh, Paul Torres. And now I do remember it was at the uh, Florida high school all-star game in Sebring, Florida. So I get there just before game time. And um, I mean, there's got to be six different Blue Jay scouts there. <clears throat> and the director of scouting, Tim Wilkin, is there. And he really likes a left-handed pitcher <clears throat> from down in West Palm Beach by the name of Sean Burnett, who ended up getting to the big leagues and pitching quite a while out of the bullpen for the for the Pirates and then started bouncing around a little bit. <clears throat> Maybe even the Nationals, I, if I remember correctly. And there was another <clears throat> left-handed pitcher from the Kissimmee area named um, uh, Torres. I forget his first name right now. <clears throat> and uh, so Torres is pitching, <clears throat> starting the game of pitching, and the area scout's there, assistant director scouting's there. And it kind of was like where three or four guys like Torres, three or four guys like Burnett better, you know, um, you're, you're wishing and you're hoping that they're all making their own individual opinions based on their perceptions and what they see and what their experiences are, because that's what you're paid for. But sometimes, you know, guys are siding with one of the bosses to get on the good graces, but that happens. It's human nature. And I'm watching Torres throw and uh, the catcher's having a tough time catching him. So I asked the question, I said, um, guys, do we know why he keeps changing his arm angle, lowering his slot? And uh, one of the responses was, well, he, especially with two strikes, he really likes to embarrass the hitters. He's trying to really make them look foolish. That's his, that's his competitive nature. Oh, okay. Another guy, well, especially today, he's doing that a lot more because the the catcher's having a really tough time catching him. So I, I think sometimes he's trying to ease up, you know, so that catcher, you know, strike three, pass ball, the guy's on first. So he's trying to avoid that. Okay. And Tim Wilkins says to me, hey, Wounds, why did you ask that question? I said, well, I, I personally think that he has a labrum issue already. And, uh, and he'll throw a couple of pitches and then it'll clunk really bad and the shoulder will sublex on him and he slides it back in. You see him when he moves his shoulder and then the next pitch or two, he's from a lower slot and then he kind of feels better and he gets back to his original slot. And another person in our conversation says, oh, come on, Jim, nobody's... Nobody can predict when somebody's hurt or how they're going to hurt. Nobody's smart enough to do that. And I said, uh, no, I, I understand. I understand what your opinion is, but I happen to disagree with that. Um, in this case, I don't think it's that I'm predicting that he's hurt, that he's going to get hurt. I think he's already hurt. So long story short, Torres goes, I believe, with the 10th pick in the first round to the to the Angels. <clears throat> And whether it was a month down the road or whatever, he's put on the DL and they're saying their shoulder issues. And by the end of the season, he's having surgery to report, repair torn labrum. Um, 
I, I've got a lot of stories like that. You go in to see a guy that never lost a game in college, uh, Division One in in a major conference, and everybody's considering him with the fifth pick in the draft, and his hips don't work, and he's got a slender build, and there's no hip mobility, and he's not getting people out in the zone. We talked about this last week. Um, there's delivery red flags, there's body types, the hip mobility, the pitch approach, the inconsistent release point, and or arm slot. A lot of these things play into when you when you watch. And at times, you know, you break out the video because you might be a little stumped on why something's happening and there's something that doesn't look right or feel right to you and, and the thing. But the reason I bring the story up is that for me, I believe that it's human nature that we don't want to admit that maybe somebody has a skill that's better than ours or, or a power or a vision or a thing. And we always um, relate back to what we're good at. So if we're a scout and we're very, very good at preparation and we're very, very good at scheduling and we're very, very good at um, – at uh, talking with coaches and different things. Those are all phenomenal positives for a scout. Well, you might not necessarily think that someone has better vision or the ability to see things than you have because you're thinking, well, that's like a super, super talent. How how many people have that? No, No, that's not possible. So when you look back at my career and, and I'd say being able to see the, types of things like this. You looked at the, uh, high speed photography that the high speed video that the brewers used to take and all the, uh, analysts and engineers would then break them down and they put all the uh, logarithms together to figure out where a person fell on the, on, on the chart, as far as if you had a good delivery or a bad delivery, or there's different stresses that need to be corrected or avoided. And, the injury risk, and then you fast forward and the technology's gotten even better and you have somebody who has the ability to break all this down in, in Justin Orndorff. And from listening to all his uh, initial videos that I've seen so far, um, he's just there looking for answers. He's just looking to help people. Um, it's a positive in, in, in my book. Um, but all of this technology is basically there to confirm what you're supposed to see and feel the feel end as far as if you're trying to develop yourself as a ball player and the vision to see end that, you know, you compare what you see. If you're an evaluator at any level, you're, you're, you can only compare what you know. You can only compare what you've seen. Um, Evaluators are great with, um, you know, um, this guy reminds me of Ben Sheets or this guy swings like Paul O'Neill. And it's a way that they start to categorize things in their mind and in their their reports. So if you actively uh, have the ability to use a DVS system like Justin Orndorff and you start comparing videos and you see the guys that rank high and the guys that rank low, you can use that in your own evaluation process. You don't necessarily have to take everybody you see and hook them into this software. 
you don't necessarily have to take everybody that you see and start doing high-speed uh, video photography. You're looking at the things you learn. You learn to see. You can train yourself to be able to see that. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person is now going to walk around and be a visionary. But these are things that technology is good at and extremely beneficial if used in the proper way. Um, part of, part of, I'm going to give you where technology kind of gets in the way. Um, my first manager, Lance Nichols, when you'd be, when he'd be working with you on fastball command or even slider control and the shape of your pitches and where in the zone you're supposed to throw them and different things. Um, and of course it was unbelievably beneficial that he was actually the catcher who was catching you and, and working on these things. You used to hit fungos for Lance. Or, um, excuse me. Lance would be hitting fungos to the infielder and you'd be the pitcher assigned to catch for him. When you caught the ball, he put his hand out and he wanted you to throw the ball, toss the ball right into his hand. Now, he wouldn't do what my dad used to do, that if you didn't hit him in the chest, he wouldn't catch it, and then you have to run down the street and catch the ball because that would waste too much time. But if you didn't throw the ball right where his hand was, he would move his hand back to where he expected that ball, and he expected you to throw that ball there every single time that you tossed him the ball. Now, he wasn't just telling you to do that. When he would catch your bullpen, you would throw a pitch. If you hit his, hit his glove, fine. If not, he'd move his glove back to where you were supposed to throw the pitch. But by the time you stepped back on the rubber from finishing your delivery and stood back up, the ball was in the air and it was coming down in your glove. 95% of the throws that Lance Nichols would make to you would go right in your glove, even before you were ready to catch it. Okay, so over time, he had perfected the feel to uh, repeat his release point, the effort level, every single thing that went into throwing a baseball, that he could do that on an outstanding rate. But he was teaching you the importance of developing that feel and repeating your release point no matter what you were doing. You could be playing darts, right? You could be shooting. You could be shooting rolled up paper into a wastebasket. It didn't matter. The next guy that I was fortunate to meet was before they had the term pitching coordinator, the guy that went around to the minor leagues and oversaw the pitching was Kenny Rowe. They used to call him the big chief. Kenny pitched uh, for the uh, – for the Dodgers. And I believe in the 64 world series, he was in the bullpen. I believe that's the year that the Dodgers won. Um, so he had many, many years of experience. Well, I've heard stories of guys that were great fungal hitters. There was a gentleman in the minor leagues with the Cardinals, major leagues and minor leagues name doesn't come to me right now, but Kenny Rowe was a fungal hitter extraordinaire. When he did fungos to the outfield, he could, and he's using the long, slender fungo with the little uh, 
you know, bottleneck at the top, old school fungo. He's hitting fungos to the outfielder. He could hit a ball straight to the guy that he wouldn't have to move. He could hit a ball that went straight to the guy and then sunk just before it got to his feet. And he could hit a ball that went straight to the guy and took off over his head to try to teach the outfielders how to get good reads and good jumps. He could hit a ball that hooked. He could hit a ball that sliced. I even witnessed one day Kenny Rose standing on a pitcher's mound, hitting three consecutive strikes to the catcher. He could throw BP using a fungo. It was the most amazing thing, right? Now, we move forward to spring training one year with the Brewers. And uh, I'm the pitching coordinator. And we have the other coordinator instructors are all former big leaguers. Uh, And then the one that wasn't ended up being a long time third base coach in the big leagues. Uh, And we show up to spring training and there's anybody that's worked in, in the minor leagues. um, You're not necessarily getting a a big raise from year to year. You know, if, if you're lucky, you get a raise that covers the cost of inflation, you know, you're, you're, you're happy. And um, the director of player remote shows up, and he wheels out this huge metal contraption. It's called the fungal man. And it's his pride and joy because this thing can hit ground ball fungos and fly ball fungos and this and that. And all the coach has to do is stop, stand, put the ball in the machine. Eventually, the coach doesn't even have to do that because as we can see in modern day, sometimes they just have some 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 kid or some assistant or intern or something doing it now. And the coach is sitting on a chair watching, but, um, I just went from in my career two two individuals, one that's telling you exactly how to perfect your fastball command. And the other one's a fungal guru. And now those outfielders are learning to take balls off the bat that do a lot of things that, that simulate and replicate the ball off the bat in a big league game, the slices, the hooks, the carries, the underspin, the overspin, a lot of things. And now we're spending spring training putting a ball in a machine to hit fungos to the position players. So they're not reading swings. They're not reading the ball off the bat. The machine can't replicate from one to another. You know, I'm sure there's an adjustment that you can do things, but now somebody has to adjust. Well, now, you know, um, those are the areas where all of a sudden technology has kind of really screwed up what's going on. Needless to say that these uh, fungal man machines, I believe at the time, cost about $35,000. And uh, one of the former big leaguers who was an infield instructor said, $35,000, you could have bought me a new fungo and spread the other uh, $34,950 to the minor league staff. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's overstating the obvious. It, it's like the, it's like the, uh, the thing I read where on a, a recent trip, the Tampa, Tampa Yankees and a ball went down to Fort Myers and they brought six pitching machines. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, it's, uh, the, the, you know, there's a place for, obviously for science technology, but when you become slave to it, you lose that creativity and genius. And that's the fear I have with baseball. That's why I think we're pushing our podcasts out there. That's why we have people like you as hosts on our, on our network, um, to just reinvigorate people out there to not, not abolish. I mean, we don't want to stop progress with technology, but there's got to be more to the world than getting things done faster and more efficiently. We've got to take our time with stuff. And you've, you've articulated that, especially with those two stories with the fungo and, um, you know, with the pitching coach, I like that with, with him. My, my dad did the same thing. You don't toss it to the hand, you're chasing it down the road. So, right. Well, Dave, I've, I've got one more. Yeah. It's kind of a story, but it's, um, it goes hand in hand with the, the process after hip mobility, spinal stability and scapular stability. Um, so one of the things I learned when I was a pitching coordinator, and I, and I probably knew this already, that it was probably part of what I was being taught when I was in the oil organization, um, because they were all about, you know, um, commanding the baseball, throwing strikes, working ahead, working fast, changing speeds, throw off the rhythm of the hitter, different things like that. Um, but in pro ball, and even even in college ball nowadays, in big-time Division One colleges, um, coaches that throw batting practice. So they're throwing batting practice every day, Six to eight months out of the year, every day. Now, you do eventually see that some of them have gone in for some surgical procedures and different things. But the trick is when I had to do it, and even today, I throw two to three hours of batting practice each day with my clients. If you let your arm go for the ride, and you focus on not using any arm muscles, so to speak, and you don't attempt to force anything, all of a sudden throwing the baseball feels really easy. And the larger muscles of your body contribute to accelerating the arm, and the arm goes along for the ride, like I like to say. So the other day, I was with a young client, and... uh, I knew his dad, who was present, would understand this because the dad went to school at Mississippi State, grew up down in that area on a farm. So I just said um, to the young 12-year-old, I said, have you ever snapped a bullwhip? And he goes, uh, no, but I know, I know what it is. And I looked at the dad and I said, certainly you've snapped a bullwhip. And he goes, yes, sir. I said, I have a question for you. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I was trying to drive home a point. Is there any muscles in a bullwhip? And of course, the 12-year-old looks at me like I was crazy. He said, no, there's no muscles in a bullwhip, you know. I said, okay, so if there's no muscles in a bullwhip, when you get it out front, how does it snap and make that noise? How does it snap? Like, How? And I said, I'll give you a hint. If you try to throw a bullwhip and you try to snap it, you try to throw it from behind your body and you start to snap behind your body, even when your body's not going to snap. 
You got to get all the way out front. So if that bow whips an extension of your arm, think about your arm and think as if it has no muscles, but the body accelerates it out to release point and it snaps like a bow whip and he starts to throw. And next thing you know, the ball's exploding in the strike zone. And he's like, man, I never thought of it that way. I said, well, I just thought my, it might drive home a point for you because your dad, I knew, had experience snapping a bullwhip. Now, obviously your arm has muscles, a bullwhip's not going to have muscles. But the concept is just like the BP throwers. If you let your arm go for the ride and relax, it's going to accelerate and throw pitches and throw strikes. If you're not throwing strikes, well, you just lost your job as a BP pitcher, especially in the big leagues. Um, so one year in spring training, um, former bench coach for the Houston Astros, John Tamargo, comes over. He lives in Florida, so he came over to manage our A-ball team in, uh, in the Melbourne, Florida area. And uh, John's a great guy. I first met him when he became a catching instructor for the Mets uh, in instructional ball in the, the Payson complex. And the Orioles shared the complex with the Mets. And that was the first time I met him. And uh, had a very, very successful minor league managing career and then was big league bench coach for the Astros. So he was bench coach when uh, Brent Strom uh, was the, uh, Brett Strom was the uh, pitching coach. And when Roger Clements was on the Astros. So he used to say to me, Runes, I'm, I'm only playing devil's advocate here. Um, why are these young pitchers thrown every day? And I said, well, they're, they're scheduled off days. But yeah, I mean, they're basically throwing. I'd like them to throw at least five out of seven days. Uh, effort level is controlled. There's different, there's light days, there's moderate days, there's heavy days based on their bullpen and their game days. I mean, that's all planned into the system. I said, but especially when they're younger, what I'm trying, the knowledge I'm trying to implant with them is, or better word, impart with them, is that if you throw with too much effort, the next day you're going to be sore. Even if it's just a long toss day or, or a flat ground day or a light bullpen day. If you're continually using those arm muscles and those shoulder muscles throughout the delivery, you're going to be sore and you're not going to want to throw the next day. It's like the pitcher that tells me um, that he doesn't want to, I like to have a pitcher throw in a five-day rotation. I like to have a pitcher throw he throws in a game, then he has a recovery day, so to speak, the day after, and then the next day throw bullpen. And a lot of guys would then push back and go, no, I want to throw the bullpen on the on the on the on the third day. Right? Um, but then they have one day off and then they have a game. So that that bullpen then tends to be a, a lighter bullpen to get ready for that game. Where if you do it on the day I would like it, you can get a lot more work done. And I try to explain to them that, well, obviously, you threw with too much effort in the game. 
Now, you worked out a couple of difficult jams and everything, so it's to be expected. And then, you know, I'd monitor or moderate volume from there. But the, the point of the is to teach them how you're not supposed to be using the muscles in your arm or the muscles in your shoulder. It goes back to that story of Nolan Ryan when he was with the Texas Rangers. They hook him up to a EMG machine and they found out that the only part, the only time that um, his rotator cuff was activated was the initial slowing down of the arm. Whereas in a high school pitcher, semi-trained uh, in Texas those years, they would use the rotator cuff and the muscles of the arm throughout the whole process. Yep. It's supposed to be tension-free. One of the phrases I use, and you got to be careful who you use this with because they've got to be a, a kid or an adult that puts effort in. But my oldest son just went through a growth, growing spurt. My younger one's about that right now. And I said, Sw- swing the bat. It's, and hitting and pitching are the same. It's got to be tension-free with the arms until the point of contact where you've got resistance. And I said, uh, swing like you don't care. Swing like you don't, excuse my language, swing like you don't give a shit. Just just get up there and let your body do the work and just play. I use the phrase now, play a little pepper. I did that to him last night. He hit a, he hit a three-run homer. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not that they were related, but it was, he was tension-free. He wasn't up there trying to muscle it out there. Um, but yeah, it's a, those, those points resonate, I think. And it's, it's part of why we're having so many injuries nowadays. Everybody's putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. And they're putting stress and tension on body parts. First, they're not being developed, as you're explaining, in the proper order. Um, and body parts that aren't supposed to be used, um, in that particular activity at such, uh, you know, w- with such force, it's like going to, to a restaurant, you know, your body pays the bill, your arm pays the tip. That's, that's the best way I could put it from a food analogy with our food audience there, but, but go ahead, but I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no problem. So in closing, I just have, uh, two statements and they have to do about, um, triple, triple spin, all right? As we've stated before, the importance in triple spin of hip mobility, spinal stability, and scapular stability are are key factors in the pitching delivery, and they're essential for long-term health of of any pitcher. But the whole philosophy of triple spin goes along with the bull whip, the rolling out the carpet. Um, Just to be a little technical for once here for a second – It's the amplification and efficiency of the rotational forces as a result of stability in the foundation and the proper rhythmic fluidity through acceleration and deacceleration. To create a flow of energy through the kinetic chain that has the three rotational forces working in combination and unison, rolling out the carpet to create an amplified resultant force applied to the baseball in a linear plane. Now that's a that's a lot of mumbo jumbo, but the goal is that with the proper hip mobility, the spinal stability, and the scapular stability, we generate force from the ground up through the kinetic chain that gets to the baseball. The arm is simply a, a conduit to that force. It does not create that force. It passes the force along. Um just like the, ro- the the hips passes it to the shoulders and the shoulders passes it to the hand, the creation of the force starts in the kinetic chain in the ground-based from your hips to your, to your feet, right? So long-term, in order for that to occur, we need to strengthen and stabilize those platforms. 
all right, hips into the ground and the scapula. This will allow those rotational forces to operate around that stable platform. These are the keys to triple spin, and it's all about the flow of energy down the slope. All right, and eventually we start taking, we start benefiting from the slope itself and instead of fighting against it. A lot of times when you see this max effort and we're attempting to use and create the force throughout the chain, instead of just letting the force flow, you'll see the, the mound becomes a, your worst enemy because you end up fighting against it uh, instead of going with the flow. Um, so like I said, it's funny how, you know, we started the, the, the conversation with Sandy Koufax and two different areas where Sandy Koufax has, um, has had a lasting effect on how baseballs has been played. Uh, and in two areas that nobody would even think of, they think of Sandy Koufax, fastball, curveballs, and no hitters. If you're a Yankee fan, it might be, you know, him going through the, the powerful Yankee lineup like a, a hot knife through butter, you know. Um, you never think about the story of the slider and how it's interconnected through the people that have been highly successful throwing it, teaching it over the ages, and how it comes back to Sandy Koufax in a way. I think that's your book, The Story of the Slider. Uh, <laughs> it might be a short essay. <laughs> yeah, that's better. better yet, better yet. By, uh, no, I think great show, a lot, a lot of information for our audience to, to grab onto and some good references to, for them to do their own homework too. Cause we, we've got a sophisticated audience, you know, we're not looking to indoctrinate everybody, but we're looking to provide you a perspective from voices that have been there, done that, that get it and are constantly learning. And I think that's important to do, but we want you to do your own homework. So Jim's giving you some references to look at. Obviously we, we promoted Justin today, Orrin Duff with his DBS system, which is great. If you're in Jim's area, definitely look him up. I, I had the the pleasure of meeting uh, a client of yours this past weekend at a tournament. Him and his father, Lawson Holland, the young man, and Derek, uh, the, the dad, phenomenal people. Um, not surprised that they linked up with you uh, and in that community. So if you're in the, the in the, the Charlotte area, the Fort Mill area, make sure you, you at least stop by. And I don't want to spoil things, but geez, I, I hope there's a facility on the horizon so you can get housed somewhere and someone can just... Uh, stop in, make a call and, and you've got your own abode there to call the house that Rooney built. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what the future brings. I've got a, a few, uh, oars in the water right now working on some projects, but, uh, yes, Derek and Lawson Copeland are, uh, outstanding individuals. I said Holland. I was thinking of Derek Holland. Yeah. Copeland. Yes. And, uh, they live in the, in the, uh, South Charlotte area. Um, they, they've, you know, in their words, as they've stated, they've, they've, Derek has attempted to afford his son every opportunity to play the game of baseball and learn and, and do something that he loves. And uh, it's just sad that they're walking proof of a lot of the scams or underqualified individuals or people that are solely in it for the money and not really looking to help kids and have their own little agendas. And, uh, basically are what I call non-professionals because they're either selling a product or selling themselves instead of actually trying to help the client, help the young guys learn how to play the game um, successfully. And uh, 
Lawson's been on the negative side of that more often than not. So I'm just so happy that uh, they were referred to me by the father of a, an existing client and uh, things are progressing nicely. That's that's how it changes around. And, and you hate to have a kid and a family go through that, but sometimes they're even more receptive to when they meet somebody like yourself and they can tell the difference now. And then they, they're better at articulating what the difference is sometimes than we are because they've actually gone through it. Um, so you've got two, two big advocates there with Derek and, and, and Lawson Copeland. Um, they, they spoke very highly of you as, as I would imagine they would and, uh, find people and encourage more people out there in that area to go see Jim and, and see if he can, I mean, it just takes one little tidbit uh, to go, but if you can go on a consistent basis, uh, maybe they can change your, your world around too. But, uh, Jim, great show again today. Uh, love that we got to talk Sandy Koufax, one of my, my all time favorites. And, uh, just got a text from Justin during the show that he'd love to meet you. So I'm going to connect you guys after the show here today and, and let the two two pitching geniuses get at it and, and change the world out there because you both have the right objective. You both got the right reason of why, and you're just looking to help kids out and, and people. Uh, so I'm going to connect that those dots after the show. But episode 283 here, Toe the Rubber, um, on, on our network of Real Voice of the Game, 50,000 subscribers. Helped us get on iHeartRadio. We appreciate you for that. Make sure you give Jim five stars today. Write some great comments. And if you have questions for us to answer uh, next week, please don't hesitate. Reach out to Jim. Reach out to myself. You can hit us all up on social media. We'll be active during the week. Tomorrow we've got Wiley and Will with another great uh, Friday show. And uh, But we'll be back next week here with Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. Jim, thanks so much for a great show. Thank you, Dave. In closing, I just one thing because I listened to uh, Wiley and Will the other day as well as a couple of the other podcasts. And um, one of the things that you can, and, and even in, in listening to the introduction on Justin Orndorff's videos, they brought up the point of, um, you know, ask questions, as you've said many times, who, who should I work with? What should I do? And there's always a trap. And the, and the trap that I see is that uh, someone has some new fancy technology, but really doesn't know how to apply it. They have a nice, really fancy facility, okay? But who are the people doing the teaching? Who are the people doing the instructing? Are they there because they've got your son or daughter's best interest at heart? Are they looking to improve each individual? Are they flexible enough to understand how your son and daughter learns, how things should proceed for their benefit? Or is it just that, there's a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of, you know, sometimes letters after a guy's name that, you know, he went to school and he's done a lot of studying, but he's never really applied it. I mean, you know, a few organizations, major league organizations in the last uh, five years have gone certain routes and have signed up uh, as consultants or handed over their entire pitching programs to some of these operations and uh, the Phillies were the latest organization to fire uh, the entire staff of the of the people that they hired as consultants because they felt that they didn't have the best interests of the Philadelphia Philly pitchers and they were looking just to improve their own resume so that they can make more sales and do other things that would benefit them and not necessarily the Phillies. So I mean if Major League Baseball uh, organizations are experiencing this uh, there's more, been more than one over the last five years. I'm sure that it's an extreme uphill, uphill battle for all young players and parents and young coaches to try to understand what the right message is, the proper message, and who's there 
for your benefit, not their own benefit. Yeah. Uh, the Reds did it last year. And I always tell these parents, beware of the philosophologist. I made up that word. Um, the, the, the guy who's never done it. It's got all these theories. And I, my message to all those, those guys out there doing that, they're great at the first 10 words. They got 70 characters down pat. Um, but I always tell them, you give me the next 10 words, you tell me the why and how, and I'll walk away. You won't hear from me again. And they can't do that. They can't do it at all. So that's why we're lucky to have guys like you out there that are getting down in the trenches with these kids and families and showing them the way. Because you don't have to. Um, you, you, you've got the why and how down, Pat. So we, we, we encourage you to keep doing it. Uh, we've got the total support of the network behind you. So appreciate all you do, Jim, not just for the community out there in Fort Mill, but for the pitching community nationally. And gosh, we have 74 countries listening. So you're, you're global now, baby. All right. Thank you, Dave. And I'll talk to everybody next week. Sounds good. Have a great week, guys. Oh, man.